Well, y'all are the tough ones. <laughs> I am glad you're with us. <clears throat> Jeremy did text me yesterday and say, how's your voice? Do you want me to preach today? And I should have said yes, probably. But I really, really wanted to preach this message. I wanted to preach it last week. And my wife was wise. And she said, your voice is in no shape to preach. Don't. You need to rest your voice. But when he texted yesterday, my wife was out of the house. <laughs> so I get to preach today. <laughs> Do you guys know there's a Japanese word, kaiju? Do you know that word? Is that word familiar? Kaiju. It's actually a word to characterize a particular kind of, uh, Mike is nodding his head, he knows. All right, you're one of us. Uh, it's a particular kind of science fiction that involves giant monsters. So uh, the Godzilla movies, King Kong movies, uh, all the spinoffs of Godzilla movies, Pacific Rim, those are all kaiju movies where you have a giant monster who comes and just smashes buildings and I don't know, they shoot at him and stuff and everything. Those are kaiju movies. That's what that that's what that refers to. And it's a huge sort of sub-sub-genre. I guess all the Transformer movies technically count as kaiju movies now, I suppose. So really, really has made a lot of money for movie makers around the globe. There is a kaiju story in the Bible. It's actually really relevant to the Gospel of Mark, oddly enough, because it's the, one, it's the story from which we get Jesus' insistence on, uh, that he calls himself over and over again, son of man. It's Daniel chapter 7. It's about these giant monsters. And I've referred to it many times as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark because it's it's kind of central to how Jesus helps us understand who he really is. But it starts off with giant monsters coming out of the ocean. And they are, I mean, they're described as beasts, which is the Hebrew word for, the, for anything that tries to eat you. You know, anything that tries to eat you or tries to eat your cattle, that's beasts. But they are monstrous beasts because they aren't like any normal beasts. It's sort of like a leopard, but it's got wings, and, and, and it's sort of like a lion, but it's, you know, got horns, and sort of like, it's all of these mixed up attributes. They're just monsters. They're, and the last one doesn't even get a description. It's just, it's giant, and it's terrible, and it's got horns coming all out of it, and it's got iron teeth, and it gnashes up the things that are around it, and nothing can stand in its way. And that, that, that monster, it turns out, has all these horns, and one of the horns has a little horn but a big mouth, and it's, it's claiming to put itself in the position of God, and it's waging war against God's people, making life miserable. So it, these are kaiju stories. These are giant monster stories. And in the middle of the story, I looked, Daniel says, Daniel 7, Starting in verse 10, I looked and thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like 
pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. That's good. These giant monsters look unstoppable. And all of a sudden you get a focus shift and you realize they are tiny compared to the ancient of days. And the books open and the monsters themselves fall under the judgment of God. And here's how that part concludes. It says this, verse 13, In my vision at night I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man. This is where Jesus gets his, the name that he calls himself over and over again. There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he referred to himself in the Gospel of John, and, and this is true in Matthew and Luke as well, mostly he refers to himself as the Son of Man. In particular, when he teaches what's going to happen to him, when he goes to Jerusalem and faces the leaders of his people and faces the power of the Roman Empire, and he says, I'll be rejected, I'll be spit on, I'll be beaten, and I'll be killed. He calls himself this person, son of man. He says, my destiny is victory, this victory. Now, if you've read the gospel up through chapter 15, that looks impossible. Jeremy talked to us last week about the crucifixion. I preached on it two weeks ago. To the Jewish mind, and to, and to the Roman mind, I'm sure if they thought about it much, what happened to Jesus looked like an absolute disproof that Jesus was any kind of a Messiah, any kind of this son of man figure. He had no victory at all. He has lost everything because Rome was able to put him on a cross. The Jewish leaders were able to manipulate the crowds and get Jesus killed. He is a loser, not a victor. That's what the story seems to imply. And so it's really important that Mark tells us the next part of the story. And that's where we get the early bits of chapter eight, uh, 16. And the Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, 
uh, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they're on their way to the tomb. They asked each other, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered their tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now verse 8 appears to be broken off in the middle, honestly. They went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, and although most of the translations kind of clean this part up, it literally reads something like this. They were afraid because... They were afraid because... Because what, Mark? Well, it's kind of broken off, and grammatically it's kind of broken off. It's not impossible to read it a different way, and that's what most translations do, but it's kind of broken off. And it looks as if very early, possibly before the end of the first century, the last bit of this gospel got damaged. And so we don't actually have, I don't think, now you can have a different opinion, and I'm not going to fight you over it. I'm just telling you what I think. I'm not your Bible. Your Bible is your Bible. Well, I don't think we have how Mark intended to end his gospel here. I think we have a very good, pious attempt to end the gospel. You can see some of the stories from the gospel of Luke, some of the stories from the gospel of John woven into the ending that's now supplied. I think it was supplied, as I said, before the end of the first century. I think that's great. I just don't think it's what Mark meant to say. Fortunately, we kind of know what Mark meant to say because all through the earlier parts of the gospel, he's told you some of the main points that he wants to get across. Over and over again, Jesus has been telling his disciple, this is what's going to happen. This is what to look for. This is what to expect. Who do you think I am? He asked back in chapter 8. You're the Christ. Then here's what's going to happen. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and raised again on the third day. And he taught that again in chapter 9. He taught that twice, actually, in chapter 9. And he teaches it again in chapter 10. And he makes reference to it once again in chapter 14. I've kind of put some of those references there for you so you can see them, so that you realize he said it again and again and again. The first thing that Mark wanted you to understand is that Jesus rose from the grave. Sin put him in. 
want you to hear that sentence. I know I can't say it very loudly. Jesus rose from the grave. Sin put him in. He says over and over again, the Jewish leaders are going to be the ones who reject me. The Romans are going to be the ones, the Gentiles are going to be the ones who kill me. They're going to turn on me, who you have rightly called the Messiah, God's Christ, God's anointed. They're going to turn on me and reject me and spit on me and beat me and kill me and put me in the ground. And I will rise. He says it over and over and over again. And what Mark wants you to know is Jesus did not stay in the grave that sin put him in. That's so important for you. That's so important for me. Jesus rose from the grave. The power of sin is a terrible power. The grave is attached to the power of sin. And because Jesus rose from the grave, you will rise from the grave as you are in Jesus Christ. Mark wants you to know that. That's not the only thing that I believe he wants you to know. If we go by the clues that he has provided us earlier in the gospel, we know some other things too. Look at what he says in Mark 13. I think I put that on your study sheet. Mark 13, verse 10. He says, before all this happens, the gospel must be preached to all the nations. Mark 14, verse 9, truly I tell you, when he talks about the woman who anointed him, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. One of the things I think Mark wants us to know is that the good news about Jesus is meant to be shared with all nations. The ending that's supplied for us includes a version of that message, and I think accurately so. Matthew has that. And Luke provides that at the beginning of Acts as well. Jesus wants this message of who he is and how he did God's will and how we can be part of that. He wants that not to just stay in the land of the Jews and be just the possession of that one nationality. He wants it to spread across all of God's creation. And he wants his people to be the ones who spread it. Go and take this gospel across the world. We can hear Mark telling us that in what he has already proclaimed to us. Third, look at what he says in Mark 14, verses 61 and 62. Jesus stands in front of the high priest. The high priest 
and, and the Sanhedrin, they have a problem because they can't really come up with a legal accusation against Jesus. To have it be legal, you need witnesses who agree with each other. And so far, they've not been able to really meet that burden. They've bribed people. They've paid money to have false witnesses. They have violated the Ten Commandments in order to try and get a conviction, and still they haven't been able to do it. And so finally, the high priest just says, you, you must testify against yourself. There's no Fifth Amendment right under Jewish law. The high priest asked him, verse 61, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Verse 62, here's Jesus' answer. I am. It's the way the NIV translates it, which I think is correct. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus testified before all of the events of Golgotha took place, before the tomb was empty. He said, my victory is assured. Can you hear the thrones of Daniel 7 being set up? Can you hear the thump of the books being opened? Can you hear the judgment of God being pronounced? This is the Son of Man. The kingdom belongs to him forever and ever. Mark wants us to know that in Jesus, doing God's will and winning the victory are forever welded together. Jesus came so that God's will could be done on earth as it's already done in heaven. He came to do God's will in the little things of his life and the big things of his life. In the day-to-day -day behavior towards people who others rejected and in the giant act of offering himself as a sacrifice to save us. Let God's will be done. And the world looked at him and said, he's lost. He's failed. He his whole movement has collapsed as his body collapses on that cross. And in the resurrection, God says, no, he is the son of man that receives the kingdom forever, that cannot pass away. The reason that matters is for all of your life up to now, and for all of your life that God gives you from this point forward, there will be a voice. As long as you live in this fallen world, there will be a voice that says, you can't afford to live as God wants you to live. This world is not going to accept God's will being done. You've got to compromise. In order to get some will, 
some, some of God's will done. You've got to break some others of God's will. If you want to do righteousness over here, you've got to be willing to do some unrighteousness over here. You just can't do God's will and be victorious. And the story of Jesus is, yes, you can. Victory and God's will are wed and welded in the story of Jesus, his death, burial, and his resurrection. The kaiju mythology starts with this horrible monster coming out. I think it's because of an atomic explosion or something, Godzilla, and he's just an awful monster. Eventually, Godzilla, I think in recent, Godzilla's like a hero. You got other giant monsters that come, and basically now, if the monsters are bad enough, the way to fight them is to get an even bigger monster. Godzilla to come and save you. And honestly, for most of human history, that's been the one trick that human beings have tried to deal with the problem of the monsters. We humans, we look at the governments that control us, the powers that are bigger than us, and we do feel like sometimes we're just under the claws of giant monsters. We feel very much like the first few verses of Daniel 7 are true for us. But our one solution is, yeah, but I just need to get a bigger monster on my side. That'll solve the whole problem. I need Godzilla. The Jews of the first century, that's what they were hoping the Messiah would be. Just a bigger monster with God's power and his muscles. Kill the monster of Rome. Kill all the other monsters and make us finally the monster that rules the world. When I'm hurt, when I'm made afraid in this world, when I suffer what the world considers defeat, my first instinct is to want to hit back. I can't help it. My first instinct is to want to defeat those who have tried to inflict defeat on me, to inflict pain on those who have tried to inflict pain on me. I want Godzilla to finally beat Mothra down into a pulp. And there's Mothra lying dead. If you've defeated the enemy that has been tormenting you. Then the question is, what now? What comes after you winning that victory? See, because Jesus here in Mark has told us there are two great commands, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And so right in the heart 
of your feeling like what I need most is to defeat and destroy these people that are making my life so hard. There's the words of Jesus saying, what you need more than that is to love them. What you need more than them being defeated and dead at your feet is for them to be redeemed and brought into the love of God. Because that's what God's after. The worst people you know, the people you are most inclined to hate, God loves them and wants to change them. Tomorrow our country is celebrating the life of Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And he, of course he has, he was such an orator, he has so many great speeches. There's a quote from one of his sermons he preached uh, several different places. He preached it at Howard University back in 57, and the next week he preached it at his home congregation in Montgomery. And here's a quote I really liked from that sermon. It's called, Loving your enemies. Hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you, and you hit me, and I hit you back, and you hit me back, and go on, you see, and goes on infinitum, it never ends. Somewhere, somehow, somebody must have a little sense. And that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil. And that's the tragedy of hate. It doesn't cut off. It only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. That is straight from the words of Jesus. The only reason it makes sense to do that the only reason it makes sense, the only way in which it makes sense for us to truly love even our enemies is that Jesus Christ, in spite of the worst that his enemies could do to him, conquered death because he did the will of God. You do what God asks you to do no matter what the world does to you. You love, no matter what hate is thrown at you. And you will be victorious and share in the victory of, Je victory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, thank you so much for the blessings you have given us. Thank you so much for the power of Jesus Christ to overcome death, come out of that grave and live for us and give us the chance to live. God help each one of us to live so that we will partake in that resurrection. 
and that we can be worthy to be in that world that is to come. God bless each one of us with strength this week, whatever comes, to love like you've loved us, to forgive like you've forgiven us, and to work like you have worked in us, to help everyone around us to draw closer to you. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to God's invitation, we invite you to do it. If you need prayers or help, or today you want to be baptized on this cold January day, we invite you to come as we stand and are led in song.